Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. The Maryland General Assembly begins its 2023 session tomorrow in Annapolis. 38 members of the House of Delegates and eight members of the Senate are taking their seats in the chambers for the first time. A new governor, controller, and attorney general begin their first terms as well. Today on Midday, a preview of the legislative agenda for the 2023 session. A little later on in the show, I'll speak with Speaker of the House Adrian Jones and Ovita Wiggins, who covers Annapolis for The Washington Post, will offer her thoughts on what lies ahead at the State House. But we begin with Maryland Senate President Bill Ferguson of Baltimore. He is in his third term in the Senate. This will be the fourth legislative session that he'll preside over as Senate president. We spoke yesterday. Bill Ferguson joined me on Zoom from the State House. Mr. President, welcome. Happy New Year. Thank you so much, Sean. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Happy New Year. Always great to have you. So um, tell me a little bit about your relationship with Wes Moore. You endorsed his candidacy for governor. Uh, you weren't the first out of the gate to do that, but uh, by June, you were firmly in the Moore camp. But uh, tell us how that relationship has evolved uh, in the months since then. Sure. Uh, you know, I've known uh, Wes for a very long time and uh, we have been close and, and he's been helpful and we've been partners on a lot of really great initiatives in the past. Um, obviously, you know, we are each in our own separate capacities now in these really you know, great roles. I, I'm you know, so honored to serve as the Senate president and I'm certain that he feels as similarly as the governor of Maryland. Um, and so, you know, it is it's a really exciting moment for me to work with somebody who I know so well. I know what he cares about. I know that, you know, I know where he has, has placed his passions his entire life. And I think, you know, we, we, we share a very similar vision of the world. And so I'm, I'm really excited to get to work with him uh, and the speaker and all of our colleagues as we really deliver for Marylanders. Uh, he is going to be required to submit a budget 48 hours after he is inaugurated uh, a week from Wednesday. Um, have you been in touch with him? Uh, have you, uh, and you and your folks uh, had lots of conversations with him and his folks about what those budget priorities are going to reflect? We certainly have. We've had lots and lots of conversations. Um, look, you know, I think any transition is um, it's a Herculean task. You know, you are moving a uh, a large $60 billion budget um, that is, you know, touches every facet of Marylanders' lives. Uh, and so there's a lot of moving pieces. So we've certainly had a number of you know, high uh, high value, kind of the, the most important issues. Um, we're, we're certainly aligned. I'm sure there's going to be places here and there where there are disagreements between the executive and legislative branches. But uh, the level of coordination and collaboration that's happened uh, has really been um, uh, extremely positive, And I'm looking forward to that that new approach. In terms of the budget, the legislature now has more of a role in shaping the budget than it has in uh, previous years. Uh, it used to be that you could only cut money from whatever the governor submitted for a budget, but that's going to change. Um, tell us how that's changing and what that will mean for the budget process. Sure. Well, this is one of those things that's sort of in the legislative, or excuse me, in the public financing weeds. Um, it does really matter. And I think, I, you know, I'm appreciate, appreciative of the people of Maryland who passed this constitutional amendment to give Maryland's legislature the same authority that uh, nearly every other legislature in the state has, which is to both be able to appropriate and cut. Um, I think this is more fiscally responsible because, you know, there were sort of things that the legislature had to do to put out your mandates in place in order to have the legislative values be upheld because we couldn't move money in a current year. And so that led to out year spending commitments 
that had to be cut in, over time or didn't, you know, it's hard, things change. And so it's not a year by year analysis, it's a longer term mandate. Um, this will give us a different level of, um, uh, of impact and uh, I think will allow for better negotiations to make sure that we are giving Marylanders what they deserve, which is a responsive government that helps them to expand opportunity. Uh, and the legislative voice will be the voice of experience in this new uh, legislative session. And so I think, you know, we know where we've been. And I think having the the, the ability to appropriate funds moving forward only makes sense uh, as as uh, the appropriate form of government uh, for Marylanders to, to get what they deserve. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. We are previewing the 2023 session of the General Assembly, which begins on Wednesday. My guest is Senate President Bill Ferguson. Our conversation was pre-recorded, so we can't take any calls or emails today. So, Senate President, um, when it comes to experience, um, this is now your fourth legislative session. You were elected Senate President in 2020. So you did the 2020, 2021, 22, and now we're on the 23 uh, legislative session. What's different about this one? Well, let's say first and foremost, we're not dealing with a global pandemic. So that's an excellent uh, place. Now, we still are dealing with it, of course, but not to the extent that we were certainly in the 21 session, which was just uh, incredibly challenging. And then in uh, in 22, we had kind of Omicron in the midst of the, the winter holiday season. Um, this is the first time it really feels like we are headed back in session in a very real way. Um, and we'll have some additional um, you know, ways for people to engage if they can't make it down in person. Um, but it really does feel like we're we're, we're going to be in more normal, regular order operations. Uh, now, what's also different is that this is the start of a new term. So we're swearing in everyone. Uh, we're, you know, new assignment, new committee assignments, new joint committee assignments, kind of new processes. We're getting ready for an inauguration. And so it's a very, very interesting time in Annapolis. Um, I'll say one of the things I've really, it, it's, it's a funny week ahead because we have Governor Hogan, who will be uh, governor for another nine days. Um, and so it's sort of this interim period uh, until uh, Governor-elect Moore is sworn in on January 18th. And so it's a lot of excitement about kind of hitting the ground running um, and then starting with a new administration in nine days. What is your assessment of uh, Governor Hogan's legacy? And are there lessons that uh, Wes Moore can take from Governor Hogan and lessons that you have taken from your experience uh, dealing with a Republican governor, a very popular one, one that's had, you know, close to a 70 percent approval rating for most of his eight years in office? What what have you learned? What what lessons do you think you'll be able to carry forward uh, uh, to, to the good? Sure. Well, when I think about Governor Hogan's legacy, you know, I think you know, he's certainly a very popular governor as he leaves office. And when you ask people what made him so popular, what makes him, wh where does that popularity um, stem from? Well, you know, a lot of people immediately say his response to COVID and how he acted to protect Marylanders. That was done in hand and in conjunction with the Maryland General Assembly. And so I think what it means is that the people of Maryland want to see productive collaboration. You know, throughout the pandemic, there were little places here and there where there were disagreements. But overall, we were in close uh, communication. There was a real collaboration about you know, who was hurting the most and how could we best um, provide support to those who were hurting. Uh, and then if you look at things like the Relief Act that we did in 2021 with you know, using federal dollars that were historic in nature and, and the work that we did to collaboratively use those dollars to maximize people's ability to recover, that was both the 21 session and the 22 session. You know, that was a real sign of, of coordination and collaboration. I think that's what Marylanders like to see. They want to see productivity. They don't want to see fighting and 
um, and uh, you know, kind of petty battles, partisan battles here and there. They want to see people get complex problems solved. And so, um, you know, that would be what I would recommend to to Governor Moore is that you know, Marylanders are, are savvy. They're smart. They want to see their government respond to their needs and be thoughtful and prudent. And you know, I think that's um, that's the message that I think will resonate. Uh, from what the experience with Governor Hogan and hopefully into the more Miller administration. So let's talk about a few specific issues that uh, are likely to come up in this legislative session. Let's start with cannabis. The uh, recreational use of cannabis for adults was passed uh, overwhelmingly by voters uh, by referendum, but there's a lot of details that have to get figured out. Um, how are you going to approach that process? What do you hope to have accomplished at the end of this session uh, when it comes to regulation of the cannabis industry? Certainly. And look, I think there are a lot of issues. This is one that we will certainly be taking up uh, for sure, because the voters of Maryland have moved that constitutional amendment forward this past uh, this past election cycle. Um, there's really three areas of focus that we have to solve. One is licensing. Uh, we have to get a licensing scheme up in place that is um, thoughtful and that allows um, lots of different participants in the new marketplace that will be created and in a way that gets the the, the legal adult use marketplace up and running by July 1st. Um, one of the challenges of not having licensing in place by July 1st is that we increase the possibility of a black uh, unregulated market being um, uh, you know, perpetrating once things are fully uh, moving forward. So that's one. Um, two is we have to deal with the taxation scheme. We have to figure out what to tax and how to tax it and then where the dollars go. Um, it's where the dollars go is incredibly, incredibly important because we need to make sure that it's flowing into communities who have been um, suffering the most over the last 50 years of the failed war on drugs. We need to use these revenues to ensure that people have more opportunity, particularly those who have been negatively impacted. And third is really making sure that we're doing right by the um, restoration of people's rights, uh, that, again, who have suffered um, because of a failed war on drugs uh, around cannabis policy. Um, that means really looking at the expungement process, not just saying that we want it, but actually making sure that it gets done so that people don't get held back for prior convictions on cannabis use. Now that it's legal, I think we need to do whatever it takes to make sure that those issues are erased off the record so that people don't have a, a negative impact as they apply for the next opportunity. So those are the three things I feel very confident we will get them done this year. Um, we're working very closely with the House. Uh, and, you know, th there's going to be disagreements here and there, but I feel confident we'll have a bill ready to be sent to uh, the General Assembly, or to the governor uh, by the end of session. There's one estimate or a couple of estimates that say that uh, cannabis sales, uh, once the licensing gets figured out, could be a billion dollars, billion with a B, over the next couple of years. What is your gut tell you about what the impact on the illegal marijuana market will be once uh, recreational uh, marijuana is is accessible and and uh, you know all the details have been figured out is this going to wipe out uh, you know uh, the black market of drug sales for marijuana in the state of Maryland you know I would say I, I think it's impossible to project one way or the other we have to learn from what we've seen in other states um, States that have um, found a good sweet spot of taxation and regulation uh, have done the best to limit the unregulated unregulated marketplace, and it's a very tenuous balance. Um, I don't think you will ever have, um, you know, if you look at sales of alcohol or sales of tobacco, there is always some unregulated sales that happen. Um, I think cannabis will be will have a very similar uh, experience with cannabis, and we'll learn over time. I think we're not. We won't be finished on the cannabis issue this upcoming session. This is something just like alcohol, just like tobacco, just like most any substance. We're back every year dealing with different iterations of 
the use and regulation of these products. And so I suspect that will be the same moving forward. I'm Tom Hall. It's midday. My guest is Senator Bill Ferguson, who is the president of the Maryland Senate. We're talking about what to expect legislatively coming up in the session in Annapolis this year. Um, Mr. President, let's talk about uh, statutes regarding child sex abuse. Um, Elizabeth Embry, who will join the Baltimore delegation in the House of Delegates uh, in a couple of days, uh, has spent the last four years uh, writing an exhaustive report report about sex abuse, uh, particularly in the Catholic Church, um, where there's a a court case uh, pending about whether or not that report will be released. But there there seems to be renewed interest in revising the statutes when it comes to what victims' rights are. Look, this is just such a painful issue in so many, so many different fronts in so many different ways. Um, Look, I think that we will have a bill this year that um, provides some additional uh, ability for for victims to receive relief uh, or compensation for harms created, um, you know it's a tenuous and it's this is a very complex part of this of civil law, the civil law process. And so, our committees have been looking at this for a while. I do think we'll see something move forward this year that uh, tries to make sure that victims have the ability to have those wrongs be compensated for. Let's talk about paid family leave, like cannabis. Um, you know, legislation was passed, but the details, uh, you know, as the old saying goes, the devil is in the details. Uh, what are the details that need to be worked out when it comes to implementing a paid family leave program? So the most important aspect of paid family leave is making sure that you have a trust fund that can fund the claims when they are able to be, when Marylanders are able to apply for that leave. And so the key is that you need to know the finances of, of what what funding would be sufficient for the program to to work appropriately. So uh, we requested in the bill that we passed last year an actuarial study that will lay out the, the, the glide path for how many years the program will have to be funded before it can be activated uh, for people to be able to take that leave. It's just like any other insurance program. Um, you have to have the, the back resources in order to compensate people um, for, for being able to take that time. And so Figuring out that glide path and then the split between employer and employees, um, it's going to be a very, very important discussion this year uh, that I think that we have to get done. Finally, I'll say just the implementation of this program, it has to be done effectively. And this is where, you know, when I look at the Moore Miller administration, the most important thing that they can do now and for the first few years is attract great people into public service because we have passed some big things like paid family leave, like the blueprint, like climate solutions now. A number of these major programs, they only work if we have great people implementing them in executive agencies every single day. And so that's why I'm excited about the Moore Miller administration. I think that um, Wes's uh, ability to set a vision and engage people uh, to see the value of public service will be enormous. And I think that we have a, a really great opportunity to bring people into state government so that they can help do the noble work of improving people's lives. And there are a lot of people who need to be brought into state government. Uh, Many people have criticized the Hogan administration for allowing state government's uh, agencies to be decimated in many ways. Uh, Just so so many people uh, have left uh, government that have not been replaced or they have been released. Uh, What's the what's the secret formula to to attracting people to state service and uh, making sure that, you know, adequate the agencies are adequately staffed? Uh, let, let me be very clear. There is no secret formula. <laughs> uh, and I think that's what we've learned. Um, there are 6,500 vacancies across state government ag- executive agencies. It's the most we've ever seen. Uh, and what that means is not only is it a, a challenge for those vacant positions and the work assigned for what would be those folks in those vacant positions, 
It's those who are, are in filled positions that are feeling totally stretched and overwhelmed. Uh, and so it's a it's a double-edged sword here of having this many vacancies because you're, you, you have gaps in service and those who are in service uh, are exhausted. And so it is so, so, so critical and it's hard work. It's not gonna be, this is not something where you just say, oh, we increase pay and it'll be solved. You know, each agency has a little bit of a different context for why their vacancies exist. Pay is absolutely a part of it, but there are other pieces to the equation. And that's going to take really strong leaders, strong secretaries who are analyzing quickly, urgently, analyzing why the vacancies exist for their particular jurisdictions, and then coming up with relentless plans that they can execute on every single day to fill those vacancies. Um, it's just hard work. Do we need to replace all 6,500? Because uh, you know, Larry Hogan right. would probably say, you know, the government was bloated. Sure. I, you know, I, I think that that's, that's a, that is not the case. I think that we have incredible public servants who are working hard every day to make sure that they don't, um, that, that they don't miss, that Marylanders don't miss out on the services they deserve. But that's not sustainable for the long haul. Um, when you're, when you have a term limit uh, and you don't have to deal with the consequences of an overstretched workforce, it's easier to say those types of things. When you are like the legislature and see this work happening every day, you know, year after year after year after year, you know that you just can't operate with such um, with such strain on individuals. And so do it fill every single vacancy? No, there's always a natural level of vacancy that will exist as turnover and, and changeover of, of, of careers. Mm -hmm. uh, but we do have to make a substantial dent. So, you know, if we're at 15 percent on average vacant let's start with the first 5% and then see where we are from there. You know, it's about, we're not going to do it overnight. So we just have to have ambitious goals and make sure that we are seeing net positive and attracting great people to serve uh, Marylanders. Senate President Bill Ferguson and Mr. President, we will be in touch throughout the session and afterwards uh, to see how things work out. But uh, best of luck to you and your fellow legislators as the session begins. Thank you so much and stay safe. We're going to have a great, great year. Up next, Senator Ferguson's counterpart in the House of Delegates, Speaker of the House, Adrian Jones. Speaker Jones joins me as our preview of the 2023 General Assembly continues on the other side of a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is 88.1. WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow, it's midday on medicine. Dr. Jeremy Green of Johns Hopkins joins me to talk about his new book, The Doctor Who Wasn't There Technology, History, and the Limits of Telehealth. Telemedicine was supposed to improve equity and access to health care, but there is evidence to suggest that it's done the opposite. So I'll speak with Dr. Jeremy Green about that tomorrow. Plus, we'll get the latest on plans for a new medical school at Morgan State University from the directors of the new school. And if you just joined us today, we are previewing the 2023 General Assembly session in Annapolis, which begins tomorrow. My next guest is Delegate Adrian Jones, who was elected Speaker of the House of Delegates in 2019. Speaker Jones and I spoke last Thursday. Madam Speaker, Happy New Year. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Happy New Year to you. Thank you, and welcome to this show. It's always good to have you. Um, talk a little bit about what your priorities for this legislative session are going to be. One of the early ones, we're going to be uh, talking about rebuilding state government. Um, 
and because there's a lot of needs and things that have been ne- neglected. Um, and so that is a, one of the major ones that we're doing. Um, also, you know, as we have a new administration coming in, we want to make sure that they have a successful term and, um, you know, make sure that uh, none of the things that we are striving to do, which is, you know, obviously we have to have a pa- uh, balanced budget. And as I referenced about rebuilding state government, I was saying that because uh, we have a, a, a large vacancy rate and it's, I think it's one of the highest vacancy rates that we've ever seen, you know, my time being here. But we anticipate having a, a healthy budget surplus that would give us enough to to uh, fund new programs and to be able to um, hire new employees who have been, who have, you know, either have been terminated or, or left. So we just, that's what we mean by building back um, uh, state government. In terms of, of, of hiring people, because the, the number oh. of employees in the state government uh, was reduced, you know, exponentially during the Hogan administration. Mm-hmm. Um, just the other day when uh, Attorney General Anthony Brown, uh, at his inauguration, he talked about the need for raising the salaries of uh, lawyers and uh, legal personnel in the AG's yep. office. Um, do you think that raising the salaries uh, is is going to be a, a key component to attracting people to state government to, through the various agencies? Um, in, in some instances, yes. Um, and particularly, particularly in that field, you're talking about lawyers. You want to make for make sure that you have the uh, the right uh, people and the skill sets, and uh, and you want make sure you get it right and think i think that uh anytime if you um uh you, you give the salary that was comparable to the service that is is expected um i think it it means uh to me that you get a, a quality individual you know um i think that's that is needed because we've been hearing that quite quite a bit sure um have you been in touch with Governor-elect Moore about his budget priorities and uh, and and you know he's going to have to propose a budget to the legislature uh, very quickly into his uh, tenure uh, after the yes. inauguration on the eighteenth? Yeah. yeah, but the, the the issue was in what Hogan announced. Guess what? Maybe about a week or so ago, that was his. And there's so so some other things that in the Moore administration that they're going to be focusing on and, and I think they'd be meeting uh, with us, um, you know, regarding that. Cause it's sort of like that awkward time because you, he's not the governor, the current governor um, puts in, you know, for, for the budget. And it's not until he comes in to the new governor comes in that he'll actually have an input or trying to either make some changes or add to, et cetera. And, what I'm thrilled about is, is this uh, gov- government actually will be communicating with us. So uh, we haven't had that in, in a while. So that's uh, that's to, to me in my time being here that you know that makes a difference in terms of serving because we all are serving both the governor's office and we as legislators. These are the same people that we represent, and so we want to make sure uh, we do the best for them. Um, and 
and make sure that we also that the two houses, the governors and the legislature are uh, actually talking to each other so we can get things right and you know and know that one if what left hand over the right hand is doing is that they're going to cover the governor's office and they say i'll cover this area um and there may be something that we already may have um well looking to do or have done so the big thing is as having that communication between the two houses which is greatly needed in order to uh, best serve the citizens that we both represent. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. My guest is the Speaker of the Maryland House, Adrian Jones. The Maryland General Assembly begins its 2023 session tomorrow. So, Speaker Jones, you mentioned communication. You expect that that's going to be different. Uh, Are there other things about the dynamic uh, uh, of the relationship between the governor's office uh, and the uh, the legislative body uh, that will change in terms of uh, you, you know the fact that there is a, a democratic governor, a democratic uh, legislature, uh, and a democratic uh, board of public works for that matter. I mean, uh, there is there is sort of one party rule in Annapolis uh, this year for the first time in a long time. Um, in addition to communication, uh, how other how else do you see the dynamic changing in the Moore administration? Well, I see that um, better communication. I see that, um, you know, when we have bills, it's not the the current governor um, did not come um, before our committee to testify for um, the administration bills, the bills that were important. And I see to them. So, and I see with the more Miller administration that we have better communication and that and I you know since he already has done it when he you know by not being um the governor um because um uh more he has um been before some of our committees I, I remember last four or five years on on and not just the blueprint but some other areas that were important to me since I've seen him testify so I think the difference there is there's more engagement with the more Miller than what we had with the current administration. And uh, when he was running for governor, Westmore talked about a couple of priorities that were important to him. One of them was uh, transit in Baltimore uh, and reviving the red line. Uh, what right. do you give the chances of that idea in this session? Well, we had talk with our federal partners, um, and it was unfortunate because I re- remember um, when uh, – the uh, the governor thought that it was a boondoggle, as his term, and and we you know we had uh, federal dollars that and and I firmly believe that had we had that that was right in the the beginning part of the uh, Hogan's administration. I think had we had those funds, I I fully believe, and I've talked to other people over the years about it that. You may not have the the crime that we have because when you put people to good quality work, because it started out at um, insecurity, and there's a there's a lot lot of job opportunities, you know, beyond social security, FBI, and all these other types of uh, places of employment, and it, it went directly to the the 
to the city. So going from the county to the city, then I think that had that, you know, was able to happen and it wasn't with state money, it was federal money. Uh, I think it made a world different to what we're, we're at today in terms of what the crime area. So that's just my thoughts. But uh, Sure. Um, yeah. Governor-elect has also talked about accelerating increases to the minimum wage. Uh, do you think there's a, an appetite for that in the legislature? Uh, we, we'll, we'll, we'll see, but it's, it's getting, I guess, close to near the when we will have been finished anyway. Um, so I think that probably the um, you know, a good chance of that hap- happening. I know, you know, I think that is one of its priorities. So. And uh, let- and we're, we're almost there. You're, we're close, close there. So I think that, uh, and I think that he wanted to be able to say, okay, we have done this. Let me check this off and get to the, you know, so. And last year you introduced a, a, a constitutional amendment uh that you sponsored to uh, to change the the Maryland Constitution to protect access to reproductive rights and abortion. Um, mm-hmm. It uh, did not get out of the Senate last year, but uh, will you be reintroducing that legislation yeah. this year? And uh, what's yes. the prospects? Yes, I think it's better prospects this year. Um, um, and so, yes, because I I do not anticipate uh, the the, uh, the governor coming in to veto it so and uh i guess this will also and, and be... plus and plus i think we have a uh better cooperation with um the senate as well on that so i think we're on the same page so that makes a difference also how so about um, criminal justice reform i know there's uh, been a, a big appetite for uh reform to the expungement uh laws can you talk a little bit about what your expectations are in that regard for the of the upcoming session? Well, I think that that's something that I will be talking with the judiciary about. Um, um, I just uh, uh, sent out a release earlier today about the some of these uh, leadership appointments and some of these other areas. So we, once people are, you know, know where they're all going to be, and I will be having uh, meetings with the committee chairs in terms of uh, the the subject matters of their area so that that will be you know with judiciary you know you can you can bet that we'll we be having that that conversation on that right you did announce that delegate mark corman uh from montgomery county will be the house majority leader and jazz lewis delegate from uh prince george's county uh, as house majority whip in this session um when the session begins tomorrow there'll be 38 new members in the house of delegates there'll be seven uh, or eight new uh, members in the Senate. Um, what do you What do you tell the thirty eight folks uh, who will be attending their first General Assembly session this year? What advice do you give them? Well, they got uh, so a prep when they had the orientation uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, in in terms of what to expect, we took a, they went around the room. I'm around the room. Went around the. Uh, uh, in terms of the state, and and for those who may just know their own area, we gave them an opportunity to see what is out there in the rest of the state, and I think that helped them. Um, sometimes the people are single-minded, and and then um, they could see what other parts of the state has to, you know, what represents. Some of them had never been to some of these areas, and I think it helps. Um, it was helping them to have that 
what we call the freshman tour. And I think that they're, they're prepared. Each one of the new ones I met one-on-one and just, you know, just to feel how, how they, they were. And, um, yeah, they, they have been, uh, um, signed committees. So, and so far, no one has complained. So about what committees <laughs> they have gotten. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, but when you think back, you know, back in the day, uh, when you were a freshman, legislator and they're uh, in Annapolis for the first time representing Baltimore County. What were the things that uh, challenged you the most? What were the things that, you know, were, were, were the most uh, difficult for you to confront as a new legislator? Well, I came in, um, I took the place of a delegate who passed away in office. So it's like mid midway. So I, w- I got uh, my uh, learning curve sort of like was baptism by fire. Yeah. And so and I would put in, in the, the committee that she was appropriations. And, um, and I found that had uh, it, uh, uh, Pete Rawlings was the committee chair at the time. That's how far back it goes. So <laughs> 97. And so now I just learned, had, had good people who, um, you know, gave me great advice and I, I, I took it, took it to, to heart. And I knew, um, you know, I love public service anyway. So it just, it was like a growing curve. And I tried to, and I tried to um, uh, share that with the new members um, who I think sometimes when they come in, they think they're in Congress, not to remind them we're in the, um, the state, this is the general assembly. And then, you know, you get them saying, this is what, this is the area that you have purview over. So, but um, like I said, you know, no public service. And I think that if you really are into what, uh, when you decided to uh, uh, come into elective office on the state level, and the reason why we do do those tours so she can get them, um, so it won't be too many surprises. They can get direct answers from the areas that, they were traveling in the state. And I think it, it does make a difference um, to them that they had that experience. And plus to see others from other parts of the state that um, they may not, not have been there or had no idea what they have there in those parts of the state. Well, Madam Speaker, we wish you and the freshman lawmakers as well as the veteran uh, legislators uh, all best wishes for this session. And thank you for your time. Oh, you're quite welcome. You take care. Delegate Adrian Jones was first elected to represent Baltimore County in 1997. She was elected Speaker of the House in the Maryland General Assembly in 2019. We spoke last Thursday. Quick break, and when we come back, Ovita Wiggins of the Washington Post shares her perspective on the upcoming General Assembly. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is 881 WYPR.